this is David Suisa. It's a special day today. I have my dear friend, Manis Friedman. Manis, I've known you, what, more than 20 years. So great to have you in our studio. It's been great 20 years. It has been. I remember one of the first things. I, I was a big fan of yours before you ever met me. And I remember your book, Doesn't Anyone Blush Anymore? And on the back, there was a blurb from Bob Dylan. And I'm thinking, how did this rabbi get a blurb from Bob Dylan? And somebody told me it was the only book he ever blurbed. It's like the only he, thing he ever blurbed. <laughs> yeah, it's like you, you have to read this book. How did you know him? Um, he's from Minnesota. I'm from Minnesota, or I live in Minnesota. And um, he had his little uh, his little episode with Christianity in the '60s. And uh, when he came out of that. He turned to the local rabbi in Minnesota to get back into Judaism. So he would come to the house Friday nights, and we would sit, and we would sing and eat. And Were you in the middle midst of writing that book? Uh, One of the all-time titles, by the way, man. Is really? I don't know if I've told you that. Doesn't anyone blush anymore? It sounds so much better than kosher sex. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me, Shmuley. Uh, especially since I'm not sure that sex has become kosher. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Intimacy is what we're going to be talking about. Oh, we will. We not, will. Not kosher sex. We will. But, I mean, you know, you're, you're a mystic, you're a Chabad rabbi, and the New York Times calls you a rising superstar, eloquent and witty in Oxford University, one of the great social philosophers of contemporary America. It's interesting how a Hasidic rabbi who studies Tanya which is the, the big text of Chabad Judaism, uh, it becomes known as a social philosopher. How did that happen? I'm not sure what a social philosopher is. I think they made that up. <laughs> yeah, because you didn't study social philosophy in is yeshiva. There, is, there a, is there a subject like that? <laughs> but what is life? Life is, I guess, a social philosophy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So uh, the philosophy of life... Well, that's what Tanya is all about. So it, it, it was never meant to be parochial. It was never meant to be just for Jews or just for religious Jews. It's life. It's the reality and the truth of life. Why shouldn't everybody know it? Why shouldn't everybody need to know it? You know, I used to study Tanya once a week with the rabbi on the phone. And after about a year, I asked him, uh, why are we doing this? I said, just because we were really getting into it. And he said three words I will never forget, three of my favorite words in the world of religion, if you will. It refines the character. I'll never forgotten those words. And all of a sudden, that sort of put it, it reframed everything we were studying because I saw it as a refinement of my character. And is that connected obviously, to intimacy. Refinement of character, the way, the way Hasidic teachings put it. Refinement of character doesn't mean strengthening your character. It means lightening your character, getting past yourself. Mm -hmm. So improving your character means getting beyond your character. Like a good self-image is an image that you can ignore. And I think that's why I love the line, Manus, because he didn't say improving. He said refining. Yes. 
refining. That's the word. Yeah. So speaking of refinement, um, what we're going to talk about today is probably one of the most difficult subjects in, in my view. Certainly, I've never done it on the podcast. And I was thinking today, why is it that it's such a difficult subject? And I think one of the reasons is we're talking about the bedroom, a private bedroom where married couples live in their own bedroom. That never comes up in conversation, ever. It doesn't come up in popular culture. The space of popular culture is outside of the bedroom. It could be in a courtroom where there's a divorce battle. It could be on a beach where there's a, who knows, a modeling uh, photo stuff. It could be in Hollywood. It can be in the world of where you see couples, but you never think about the bedroom. And I think this is one of the reasons why this is such a difficult subject is because it's not on our radar screen, because it's so private and everybody has their private world. And you've gone into that world with this sort of refined language. You say we all crave in intimacy. It's essential to our emotional and spiritual health. And without it, we don't feel whole. And yet today our culture faces an intimacy crisis. What do you mean by that? I think we all know that we're missing it and we don't know what to do about it. So we're paying the price, but we're not even sure what we're suffering from. Because without intimacy, life really is reduced to almost meaninglessness. And it's not just the bedroom. It's the whole attitude towards life. <clears throat> you know, there's this guy who was suing his parents for giving birth to him without his consent. <laughs> True. Where do you come up with those? That's great. Yeah. Yeah. He's 27 years old, and he's suing them because they didn't ask his consent. <laughs> so now he wants them to pay for every expense he has for the rest of his life because they did this to him. And he's telling everyone in the world, you owe your parents nothing. This is like the opposite or the antithesis to the Ten Commandments. Oh, so you're saying, you're, you're broadening the view of intimacy. Here. Yes. That it includes parental relationship with parents. It, it, it includes our definition of life. What, what is this guy saying? I didn't ask to be born. You didn't consult with me. So now you owe me. If that's our attitude, we might as well just fold up the tents and quit. Life is over. It's, we're finished. But there's a positive side to it. Because even 11-year-olds, when they get into a bad mood, They'll say, I didn't ask to be born, so why do I have to clean up my room? <laughs> I didn't even ask to be born, and I have to clean up a room? And, of course, the parents panic. Kid sounds a little depressed, and they put him on medication for the rest of his life. And What they should say when a kid says, I didn't ask to be born, the parents should say, neither did we. 
nobody asks to be born. Philosophers used to write about it and get really famous <laughs> and make a lot of money on it. Now every schmendrick, every kid is saying, I didn't ask to be born. What does that tell us? We don't ask to be born, by the way. There is some new, new age philosophy that you ask to be born and you pick your parents and you pick... No. We don't ask to be born because we don't need to be born. And that's our default position. You want to know what life is all about? You don't need it. That's the first thing we know about life. I don't need it. That is amazing. It is so beautiful. It's so profound. It's so liberating. You know, one of the first things you ever told me, I don't know if you remember this, because I, I was following you for years and I'd never met you. And the first time we met, it was in Crown Heights. We're sitting at this big dinner and sitting next to you. Kazushi Kunin arranged it. <laughs> and, and you turned around to me and you said, what is the biggest fear that people have? We just barely met. And I said, ah, losing a job, your health, God forbid, tragedy. And he said, no, the fear that their life has no meaning. I never connected fear with meaning. That is our ultimate fear. You know, we can... We can distract ourselves by being afraid of pain, being afraid of loneliness. We're just hiding our real pain. <laughs> our real pain is not that I'm a loser. It's that I'm nothing. And intimacy is there to fill this hole, but I'm interested in how you connected intimacy with responsibility, the way you spoke about the, the kid and the relationship with the parents. Talk to me about that. The ability to connect to another human being, like for real, not use another person, not try to get something from the other person, but to really merge with another human being, the first thing you have to do is admit, recognize, and accept. I don't need to be here. This is not about me. Because as soon as it's about you, no one else has any room in your life. You can't. You can't share your existence if it's about you. So you're on a first date, blind date, you're a shidduch. You're having seven up in the lobby of a hotel. <laughs> and you say to yourself, I don't need to be here. And that's the starting point. Is that the starting point for all relationships? It's the starting point for everything, for sanity. So thank God when a child says, I didn't ask to be born, wow, you have an opportunity to introduce your child to reality, a beautiful reality. So I would say to the kid, you're right. You didn't ask to be born. So follow the thought. Where does it lead you? You didn't ask to be born because you don't need to be born. If you needed to, you would ask. You don't need to be born. Follow the thought. You're, you're on your way. Don't stop now. Next, 
What, what conclusion? Do I do? Yeah. I didn't ask to be born. I don't need to be born. I don't need to be here. Then why am I here? That is such a good question. That is such a necessary question. A human being who doesn't ask that question has not yet become human. That's when you start being a mensch. Why am I here? And the reason I'm asking that is because I have a sense that I don't need this. <laughs> so it can't be about me. Otherwise, I know why I'm here. To eat, to drink, and to be merry. But no, I don't need any of that. <clears throat> so why am I here? If I didn't create myself, you know, connect the dots. Right. So my creator needs me, which is why he created me. Kind of logical. <laughs> mm. Logical, but controversial in the Jewish world, because God is all-powerful. Oh, God doesn't God. need anything that feels like uh, we're undermining his awesomeness and power. That is terrible, really terrible. We've, we've made God so perfect that he's completely irrelevant. <laughs> Thank you very much. You know, I got to interject and thank you, Manis, because you've thrown me for a wonderful loop because I was coming into this podcast focusing on the intimacy of the bedroom, and you have suddenly expanded the definition of intimacy. And from what I hear, you're incorporating intimacy in our relationship with our parents, with our kids, with God, with others. Primarily with God. Primarily with God. That's where it starts. It starts with him. Because we're, we're going to end up in the bedroom soon yeah. in this conversation. But I want so to speak. So to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I want to continue, though, with this uh, expansion of the view of intimacy, especially okay. in the context of God, because that's kind of novel thinking. Okay. So what are the first words of the Ten Commandments? Anoichi Hashem Alekecha, and they translated, I am God, your God. I am God, your God. Is that poetic? <laughs> Is that lyrical? Just say, I'm God, or I'm your God. <clears throat> I am God, your God, who took you out of Egypt. Translated it properly. I, God perfect, infinite, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful. I, God, am yours. That's the opening statement. Which means being perfect is lacking one important quality, intimacy. You can't be intimate with yourself. So God says, I am eternal. I've been around forever. I can handle myself very well, thank you. I can take good care of myself. I don't need anything from you. But by myself? Nope. I need someone else beside me. And I need you. You know what's interesting, man, is because it's almost God is a partner. Uh, a supporter, a lover. At the same time, so much of Judaism 
is based on God as a commander. And we report to him, and we got to do as he tell us. And how do you reconcile those two? A good balance would be nice. Imbalance makes him into a monster. So you say, God is all-powerful. He's almighty. He needs nothing. He's invulnerable. Love him. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> you can't love him. From what you described? You can't love it. Yeah. Can't. Right. Let me tell you this really powerful story. I get a phone call, and I get very interesting phone calls from uh, all over the world. I get I a phone call from a guy who says, I live in a, I don't want to give you my name. I live in a small town where there are no Jews. I was born Jewish. I'm a retired psychiatrist. For the last 36 years, I've been practicing Christianity. But now, as I'm getting older, I'd like to feel connected to my people. But there are no Jews here. What can I do to feel connected to my people? So, of course, I said, get a pair of tefillin, and you'll put them on every morning. You'll feel connected to your people. He says, oh, I can't do that. Every time I try to do something Jewish, I've had a bad experience. Now, I, 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 don't, I don't even want to try to imagine what that means, but what I said to him was, uh, nobody's Jewish because it's been a good experience. <laughs> If you do what God needs from a Jew, you feel like a Jew. If you do what God needs from a non-Jew, you feel like a non-Jew. He says, God needs? Not familiar with that. So I'm getting a little impatient here, and I just say, look, God is infinite, right? He says, yeah. God is infinitely strong, infinitely knowing, infinitely kind, infinitely patient? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, then, he must also be infinitely vulnerable. So he starts to laugh. He says, God is vulnerable? God is almighty. It's like God is also created in our image. You know? Because I love the word need. Because need seems to thread the needle. Because expects is more the di dictator that's hard to love. Someone who just expects. But needs brings some intimacy. Is that what's happening here? That's where I'm going, yes. And this guy brought it out so well. He's a retired psychiatrist. Watch out. Now, the one thing we know in psychiatry is that vulnerability comes from strength, not from weakness. Right? It's one of the big insights. Mm -hmm. So I said to him, Doctor, are you suggesting that vulnerability is a weakness? He got so flustered, he hung up the phone. A couple of days later, he calls up. He says, hi, I don't want to tell you my name, but I'm from this little town. Where do I get Tefillin? I said, why all of a sudden? He says, because I can't accept Christianity, the message of Christianity. I said, after 36 years? He says, my professional background doesn't let me, doesn't allow me. I said, after 36 years? He says, let me explain. In our profession, 
we know that if a man, for example, says to a woman, I love you very much, very much, what, you're not interested? <laughs> well, you're lost. In other words, he's not vulnerable. Mm -hmm. We know he doesn't love her, he never loved her, and his claim that he loves her was manipulation because mm. there's no love without vulnerability. vulnerability. Wow. That's difficult for me to hear this because I'm always afraid to show my vulnerabilities because, I don't know, because I am. Um, because we think vulnerability is a weakness. Mm. But look, listen to this. How is vulnerability not a weakness? How can you be vulnerable without being vulnerable to pain, to loss? What other kind of vulnerability is there? So the, the conventional understanding is if you're confident, if you're strong, you can take some of the pain of the vulnerability. You'll be hurt, but you'll be okay. Wow. But that's still involving pain. So you're strong, not strong enough. There's still pain. God says, I am God. And it's not enough. Now that's vulnerable. <laughs> no, I'm not going to die. But I'm not enough without you. That is so amazing. <laughs> it's so strong. Oh. The more amazing thing is, and with me, you are okay? <laughs> I can do that for you? Wow. So vulnerability simply means just me? That doesn't mean anything. Particularly when I'm perfect. There's such an irony here because... You start off saying, you know, am I really, do I need to be here? No. So which gets you out of yourself. And then you got to loop back into yourself to realize that vulnerability could be a strength and not a weakness. Because as long as you keep thinking about your vulnerability and afraid of it, then you're going to still be caught up within yourself. So it's so interesting. I'm trying to figure this one out because you're... You're exposing your vulnerability as a strength without being caught up in yourself. It's not self-defense. Mm. Now, for a human being, vulnerability is a little different than for God. But what they have in common, just me? I remember you gave a class in my house, man. It was singles. And you said, you know, when, when people date... They're not looking for soulmates. They're looking for need mates. And you have, a, you have a list. These are the things I need, right? So I need A, B, C, D, and that's how that's the lens by which people look at each other. Will they fulfill my need, which I guess is exactly what you're talking about, this idea of all about me and not about the soul. And if you marry someone because that person will fulfill your needs... You're a user, and when you use a human being, that's called abuse. It may be gentle, it may be mutual, but you're abusing each other.
Because using a person is abusing. And thinking about your needs is the opposite of intimacy? Yeah. You're there for me. There's nothing intimate about that. I was going to ask you the biggest obstacle to intimacy. Love. (laughs) (laughs) I remember, shut up, I love you. You wrote that for me once. Yes. Love is destroying marriages more than any other issue. How could that be? Because love is selfish. Love is selfish. Love is about me. I mean, listen to the sentence. I love you. It's about me. Just to be funny for a minute, a man says to his wife, I love you. She says, I love you. And they get into an argument. (laughs) (laughs) Because when he says, I love you, he's trying to say something about himself, which is not easy for a man. He finally gets up the courage and he says, I got to tell you, I, I, I love you. And she says, she says, oh, okay, enough about you. Now I love you. So that's it. I just get to say three words and now you let's change fight. the subject. Now let's fight. That's so good. Now, now look, you're talking to someone who says, I love you way too much, I guess. So I'm feeling pleasantly guilty here of that. So talk to me about, uh, what's an alternative? To if love is a, the way it's expressed in today's world, you know, an obstacle to real intimacy. How do you? How would you articulate an alternative to that? First of all, we need to stop worshiping love. We literally—it's the idol mm. of America mm. or the West. We worship it. We'll kill for it. We'll die for it. We blame it for everything. Mm. If there's a problem, it's because there's not enough love. Just more love and everything. God is love. Or love is God. (laughs) And it's not working. It's not working. In the last 80 years, everyone who got married got married for love. Marriages are better now. Remember when Tevye asks Golda, do you love me? She sings him a song about doing his laundry or something. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. She, she's smart, and he is immature. She is saying, for 25 years, you have me, me, all of me. All you can think of is love. Mm-hmm. That's one little dimension. So am I giving you my love? I gave me to you. Mm. And if that's not love, then what is, right? Mm. <clears throat> so we got to stop worshiping love. Love is a personal, uh, internal experience. If I love you, that's my business. You may never even know because it's, it's for me. Doesn't it's it feel I'm, good, though? To somebody that, uh, if you tell them you love them, doesn't it feel good to them, though, that uh, you're showing them, you're telling them that you love them? Is uh, is there any giving happening there, emotional giving? It does feel good, but 
we're exaggerating it way beyond its usefulness. Mm. Any compliment feels good. Mm. You look good today. That's an even better compliment because there's no stickiness. You know, it's like, I love you. Um, <coughs> you have a response to that? They're like, but when I say you look good today, I, you know, no strings attached. It's so interesting, man. It's the idea of I love you as a almost a sign of pressure sometimes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is what is the right thing? If it's not love, then what is? What is marriage all about? Intimacy is a non-thing. And you, you know, you've learned a little Tanya and it's the, it's the wisdom of no things. Things don't take much wisdom. You taste it, you touch it, you weigh it, you measure it. So you know, you don't need brains for that. So anything your senses can tell you, you don't need intelligence. What you see, the cow sees too. Cows are not smart. <laughs> so... Where do you need real intelligence? When it comes to non-things. There you need intelligence. There you need to be able to, to think abstractly and so on. Intimacy means a connection between two people that involves no thing. And does that include words and speaking? Yes. Is silence part of that no things? Yes. And darkness. Anything you see is a thing, and it will distract you from the intimacy. So love, it turns out, is a thing. You can have, not have, have more, have less. You can have real love, you can have fake love, you can have <laughs> it's a thing. It gets in the way of intimacy. It's a shiny thing. Very shiny, beautiful, but it's it's a intimacy is something <clears throat> much deeper that whispers, that hard that to can, see. That can only happen when you see nothing, mm. hear nothing, and, and say, say nothing. nothing. So, if you ask your grandmother what happens in the bedroom, she says. Nothing. <laughs> you say, come on, I'm 48. Time to tell me what's going on. She says, nothing. And that's the right answer. A bedroom is a no-thing zone. Don't bring anything into the bedroom. It's a place for him and her. Him is not a thing. Her is not a thing. Don't turn it into pornography. Don't objectify there are no things in a bedroom. It's just them. Who are you calling a thing? <laughs> like this guy who tells me way back when I first came to Minnesota. He says, I'm getting divorced. I'm getting divorced. I don't need this. So like a typical yeshiva bach, I said, well, if you don't need this, divorce this. Why are you divorcing her? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, when he said this, he meant her. There was never a her. 
to him, she was a this. Well, what's tragic here, potentially, Manis, is that you end up divorcing someone that you never really knew. Yeah, in marriage counseling, which I've stopped doing, thank God, uh, <clears throat> they accuse each other of all sorts of stuff. Not, they rip each other apart. And then they turn to me and say, so should we get divorced? And I thought, um, maybe you should try getting married. You look like a nice couple. <laughs> You've never gotten married. You've been living side by side, using each other, and you want to get divorced? First, get married. So we're submerged in things. One of those things is my needs, my own needs, and what I say, what I hear, what I see. How about what I think? Are thoughts also things? Well, thoughts are neutral. You can either think things or you can think non-things. How do you think non-things? When you turn off the light... Mm. and you turn off the noise, your mind will go to non-things. One, one of my favorite stories, which I heard as a teenager, the Kotzke Rebbe, to make a long story short, was asked, how well do you know your son? Because he was very insightful into people's personalities. Right? So they said to him, how well do you know your son? He said, my son... I know with which thoughts I invited him into this world. Mm. Hmm. That blew me away. Hmm. It still does. Wow. Wow. It still does. That's thoughts on a non-thing. You know, it's interesting, Manus, when we think of tuning out these days, we don't go further than turning off the iPhone. I know I was with uh, Ariana Huffington at this conference recently, and she's starting a whole track on Shabbat and just the whole thing. She has a movement called Thrive Global. Hmm. It's really interesting, and it's based around this idea that we're, you know, uh, contaminated by the digital world, and our attention span is shortening nonstop, and we're like, you know, consuming news like popcorn, and it's driving us crazy. And so she has a whole thing on slowing down, and one of them is. You know, don't go to bed with your iPhone, which is great. But you're taking it way further, way further. It goes way beyond the iPhone. The iPhone is a symptom of our aloneness, lack of intimacy. Some people are blaming it for the lack of intimacy. We're so caught up with the phone, we don't even notice each other. We stopped noticing each other, and thank God we have a phone. <laughs> Are we threatened by <clears throat> silence? You know, is, 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 is this also a, a side effect of this constant stimulation that we get all day, then all of a sudden, you know, you enter the bedroom, there's no light, it's dark, you can't hear anything, you can't see anything, and you're with your wife or your husband, and it's full of silence, and we don't know what that silence means. We're not used to it. How do you do? You know, even on a date, before you get married, if the silence is that uncomfortable, something's wrong. You can't mm. just sit with each other for a minute. Mm. It's got to mm. be about something. Mm. I think about that all the time, Manis. Like, I always think, you know, because I'm single, and if I'm going to 
be with someone. It has to be someone that I can have great conversation with because conversation is so important. And, and here I'm hearing about silence. I don't even know what that is. I mean, I'd know it what it is when I'm alone, but it's hard for me to... It means, among other things, that it's not about me. It's not about me. Don't, don't put the pressure on me. It's not about me. So here's a perfect description of um, the good chemistry that should exist between a man and a woman who are thinking of marrying each other. Good chemistry means he's sitting there with a woman, a woman he likes, respects, admires, but he feels completely comfortable in himself, in, his, in being a man. She's doing that. She is making him comfortable, feeling like a man. And she, sitting with this guy, suddenly finds herself feeling really comfortable being a woman. No tension, no pressure, no need to prove anything, say anything, show anything. Just, I'm okay. He's doing that. So what it means, in practical terms, he has to be feeling, I could take care of this woman for the rest of my life. And she has to be feeling, I would follow this guy wherever he wants to go. Oh, oh you're getting on delicate ground here. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. This, this, this <clears throat> Among is very things, old school. Yeah, yeah. Among the things that we need to repair is male and female understanding of because, yeah, we've lost it. Male means nothing. Female means nothing. That's terrible. Terrible. <clears throat> so what do they have in common? I would love to take care of you for the rest of my life. I would love to support you wherever you want to go for the rest of my life. What do they have in common? It's not about me. Mm. That's good chemistry. And isn't it also, uh, when you say the woman is ready to follow, in a great relationship, isn't the man also ready to follow in a certain way as well, in certain areas? Inevitably, there will be cer certain things where she's ahead of him, mm -hmm. and he's got to follow if he's smart. I mean, I, I, I hear that all the time when you have a Chabad couple at, at a college campus, and friends of mine go for Friday night Shabbat, and I always talk about how the couple itself, and the woman is so important, and there's no sense that she's necessarily following him rather than completing him, maybe? Well, following him is an awesome talent. Mm. Um, Without feeling subservient. No, no, no. No, on the contrary. The only reason he's a man is because she's willing to follow him. Without that, he's not a man. If you want to get biblical about it, <clears throat> after they were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, Chava was cursed, in quotes. You're going to yearn for your husband. What is the curse? Sounds like she's going to be dependent. Like she's going to be desperate to find a husband. 
So the Medrash makes an interesting observation. The Medrash says, you see how God's curses always turn into blessings. A woman yearns for her husband. When men find out, they go crazy trying to find a wife. <laughs> and it's not a joke. It seems that every, <clears throat> so many people, man, is, are yearning these days to find their soulmates. So I was just speaking to a rabbi last night who's sort of in the singles world, and he's and trying to help. And it all begins in the woman's yearning. Without that, there is no man. Because a man is a response to that yearning. And what's happening in today's world that did not happen 15, 20 years ago is so many of the initial contacts are happening on J-Date and on the Internet. So from what I hear, there's an inevitable disappointment because the person never looks like they look like on the Internet, on the screen. And it's creating this like crisis that we, we haven't seen before. And this rabbi last night, man, as he's telling me, he, it's worse than he's ever seen it. The inability of soulmates to find each other. It seems like we're in the middle of a perfect storm of circumstances that is precluding the connection of soulmates. The only reason a woman marries a man is so that she can be a woman. The only reason a man marries a woman is so that he can be a man. But the crazy philosophy, going back to the philosophy of life, social philosophy, the crazy philosophy that marriage is a 50-50 proposition. That means you don't get to be a man, she doesn't get to be a woman, nobody's healthy, nobody's happy. You're talking 100-100. Yes. I'm there to be a man. I don't want to be half woman. And she's there to be a woman, not to compromise it. So <clears throat> going back to this, I don't need to be here. The future of psychology, you, hear, you heard it here first. The future of psychology is don't dig into your soul to find your unexpressed needs or repressed needs. That's just under the surface. That's not deep enough. And that's just going to frustrate you more. Dig a little deeper than that, and you will discover the part of you that needs nothing. You need nothing because you didn't ask to be born. It's in that place where you need nothing. That's where prophecy happens. To become a prophet, you have to get to that place. Where you need nothing. Where you need nothing. Now, let me push back on this, because uh, my daughter, Mia, who's getting married, Mazel tov. she did a, a TEDx talk once on the true meaning of love, and she spoke about the love as the ability to make somebody feel needed, as receiving, not giving. So I'm wondering, when you say you get to a point where you need nothing, I'm wondering if at that point the real need is to feel needed. And one of the best ways to express your love with your soulmate is to make them feel needed. 
you know, it's not instead of just bringing flowers, you can bring a question like, what do you think of this idea? I need your help with this project. What do you think of that, Manus? I think you wrote her speech. <laughs> Come on. I helped her. A lot. I helped her. We, we worked on <coughs> it together. <coughs> and yeah. she, she uh, originally, she got the idea when she was volunteering at a homeless shelter at downtown L.A. on Skid Row. And she had this business doing, um, you know, accessories and earrings and bracelets and so forth. And she was giving a class to homeless women on creating earrings. And, and they were all following instructions except for one. And this woman, Gloria was her name, she created this spectacular new pattern that Mia, my daughter, had never seen before. So she said to her, she said, Gloria, this is great. I've never seen this. It's like I... I learned something from you. And the reaction on Gloria's face was something my daughter never forgot. It's like, oh, my God, I'm a homeless woman, and I feel needed? You mean I taught you something? And the greatest gift she could have given Gloria that day was the statement that I learned something from you. And based on that, she did her talk. Brilliant. Brilliant. Mia, if you're listening to this. In fact, if you want to sum up all of life, life is a choice. What is the choice? You can be needy or you can be needed. That's it. That's the whole story. If you're needy, you're headed for a depression. If you're needed, you're a hero. That's it. There's, there's a closing of the loop here that's really interesting because we started off this conversation with, I don't need to be here. And then the word is still there in a different context. Is I'm needed rather than not needy. I don't need, so can I do something for you? I tell you again, <clears throat> I had this couple who came from marriage counseling. They were vicious and they were so good at it. <laughs> <laughs> They were a good match. <laughs> they ripped each other apart so brilliantly. And I was getting really tired of this week after week. So I said to them, next week, let's get together at the kosher deli in public. I thought they would tone it down. <laughs> I was wrong. There were about 20 people in the, in, the, in the store, and they went at each other as if there was no one there. Mm. Same as... Needy. Oh. They were needy. And needy when, on steroids. When they were finally exhausted, he turns to me and he says, wow, I think we got a really serious problem here. <laughs> I said, actually, uh, no. Not really. Not a serious problem. He said, why do you say that? I said, because I don't care. 20 people in the room here, they don't care. You told me your own mother doesn't want to hear about it anymore. Nobody cares. How important can this be? How serious a problem can it be when nobody cares? They were a little stunned. There was a quiet moment, and then she turns to me and says, so how are you? They've never said that before. So I'm imagining what goes on in her mind. Wait a minute. We don't have a problem? What else is there to talk about? <laughs> oh, oh, you. Yeah, right. How are you? First time. Mm. 
So when you get past your problem, what happens? You notice somebody else. This you become goes, available. This goes so counter. So much of what we hear, so many of the self-help books. <clears throat> That's why this is the future of psychology. Because it's not working. A person comes to a psychologist burdened. And, and I am, and my mother didn't, and I this, and I'm feeling, and I'm. What does a psychiatrist do? They feel yeah, that. tell me more about that. How does that feel? How does? And the person is thinking, no, 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 no. Get me out of myself. <laughs> Don't drag me further in. It becomes your signature, your your sense of I don't know your your brand, is that you and your have prison. problems. And your, your brand prison. and your prison. And you're, we're drowning in it. We're drowning. You know, an amazing thing. Of all the inaugural speeches, what is the most memorable for anyone in this generation? Kennedy, who said, I'm not going to do anything for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Well, I think it's the greatest line it in, is. Human, in, in, in U.S. politics. Greatest line. And we've sort of, we're abandoning it more and more every day. Mm-hmm. What and why did people love it? Because it's not about you. <laughs> we love that. You think we love it? Yes. Because on the surface, it looks like we love the other way, which is give me, give me, give me, give me. But you're saying we really love I'm giving deep down. God calls to Avraham. Avraham says, Hineni which simply translated means I'm here. But what does that mean? God knows where you are. What are you saying? I'm here. <laughs> He's located you. You don't have to tell him where you are. <clears throat> Hineni means I'm unemployed. <laughs> you need something? Talk to me because I got nothing to do here. And I want to be needed. I'm, I'm available. I'm completely available because I'm not needy. Let me, let me transition to couples, singles, meeting each other. And I don't know how to phrase this question or if it's even a question, but I'm trying to visualize a healthy conversation when you first meet somebody because there's all the anxiety that you have and you want to impress somebody and all the stuff we've been talking about. You know, you have the needs and stuff like that and all the things. What's your, how, do you, how do you visualize a healthy sort of conversation among singles who are meeting each other, yearning to meet their soulmate? Ideally, and just ideally, and I don't mean this literally, don't dress up. Don't be on your best behavior. Go there look at the other person and say, do I want to marry you? That's all. Don't make a good impression. Don't try to win anybody over. You want to know whether this is the person you're going to marry. So go check them out. And people say, how much do you reveal about yourself on a date? Nothing. You're talking to a stranger. This phenomenon called dating is a disease. It's like a, it's like a mini-marriage. Some people take it more seriously than a marriage. You, treat on, you cheat on a girlfriend, you're lower than dirt. 
You cheat on your wife. <laughs> men will be men. <laughs> so what is this dating business? First of all, never date anybody for more than three months. Never. Because if it goes past three months, you're getting married. <laughs> Without a ceremony, but you're too much. A date if you want to call it that, if you must call it that, is simply a meeting. You met someone. You had a Coke. That's it. You're going to marry her or not? Are you saying here that silence creates a certain deep, deep perception of a person when you strip away all the stuff of life, which is what do you do for a living and what's my ideas and my thoughts, and my ideology and my look how funny I am and all that stuff, right? When you strip it away, you're in a better position to see a person. Is that what I'm hearing? For sure. And you don't get hurt. You don't create this artificial lifestyle, which is called dating. <clears throat> What is a person when you strip away all things? What's left? It's a little hard to describe because anything you describe is going to be a thing. But people can understand this. When your wife is out of town, you miss her. Yeah. You miss her. Yeah. What do you miss about her? Nothing. Just her. She's not there. So you do know what it means. Just her, not something about her. <laughs> the tragedy is, as soon as she walks in the door, it becomes about something. Did you do this? Do you have that? Where is it? Mm. Can you just miss her for another minute <laughs> after she walks in the door? You know, speaking of, <clears throat> speaking of that, I mean... I've heard this many times that uh, when couples have kids, children, those children end up getting up the, in the way of intimacy. I mean, as, as harsh as it is to say, they become almost things in, the, in, it, in terms of obstacles to intimacy. And just like you said, when you come back home, did you do the homework with the kid? Did you pack his lunch and stuff like that? But this applies to children also. Glad you mentioned it. You're sitting at your Shabbos table because you're into Shabbos. And there's an empty chair because your kid doesn't come to the table. What are you missing? What are you upset about? What are you lacking? What's disturbing you? Him or her. The presence. If what's disturbing you is that your kid is not keeping Shabbos or that an empty chair looks bad at the table, <laughs> it just doesn't look right, you know, mm. your kid's going to hate you. But if what you're missing is the child, kid's going to love you. So God needs us to be his what does he need from us? He's perfect. He doesn't need anything. Just needs us. 
And that's why the Jew who sins, just as Jewish. But if God is sitting at his Shabbos table, and he is, and we don't join him at the table, he misses us. He needs us, and we're not there. So if your child, who you need, is not there, do you need him any less? Or do you need him a little more? So the Jew who doesn't show up to the Shabbos table, the Jew who doesn't put on tefillin, the Jew who doesn't keep kosher, the Jew who doesn't, does God not need him? He needs him. And because he's not there, God misses him, not something from him. You know, you bring up the Shabbat table. Is that practice for intimacy, Shabbat itself? Life is practice for intimacy. Mm. Mm. You should never live a life that isn't intimate. It should never be about things. That's pornography. Is, does that include a political position? Yes. Because I, I was wanted to push you here and see if we can extend this concept of intimacy to one of the things that's happening in the Jewish world right now is we're at each other's throats. And the conversation itself has become so coarse and incendiary. Is that those are things. How do you... How do you take this concept of intimacy into the communal world where we're just <laughs> driving each other crazy? You have to remind people, you know, your grandparents, they were really married. To them, divorce didn't exist. And then people say, oh, yeah, sure, sure. They were miserable. <laughs> <clears throat> they didn't get divorced, but they were not happy. They were miserable. Both things are true they would never get divorced because they would never give up each other. Because they were bonded to each other. Well, I got to tell you, a lot of Jews are divorcing each other. Oh, my God. I know Democrats are divorcing Republicans yeah, and vice yeah. versa. Yeah. So we're in the midst of a communal divorce crisis. Because we never had each other. Our grandparents argued and bickered and complained about all the things they didn't like about each other. Why do you have to be like this? Why can't you do like that? <laughs> they disagreed on everything, but they were bonded to each other. We're living the exact opposite life. We want things to be exactly the way we want them to be. Everything is important. Everything is, is reason to hate and fight and are we bonded to each other? Not at all. So even when we love everything about each other, we're still alone in the world. And that's, that's a killer. When you feel alone in the world, literally, your immune system crashes. It's dangerous. So God says, get married and stop being alone. Like me. I created you because I was alone. I hate it. So be like me. It just struck me now that I'm visualizing the emissaries, the Chabad emissaries, 
whether they're in Uzbekistan or Bakersfield or anywhere around the world. And every time I've been in their company, they both feel really needed. This is the sense I get from Chabad emissaries. They feel needed. And it struck me today. They're not, they don't, a Chabad shliach doesn't look needy. He looks needed. That is the biggest gift that Ebbe gave us. He said, I'll take care of your needs so you can stop thinking about them. You be needed. You take on a community, a country, a, <laughs> uh, a, a continent, and take full responsibility for the rest of your life. That's so good. It's so good. We would much rather be needed than loved. We would much rather be needed than needy. It is so liberating. I remember the language in school, every school, I'm sure. What's wrong with you? Get your act together. Why can't you get your, your work done? Why do you do that? Why do you do... Nobody's going to want to marry you. That <laughs> was a big threat. <laughs> What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? You got to become something. We hate that. Torah comes along and says, well, Hasidus anyway, comes along and says, you don't have to become anything. God created the world. He's needy. You didn't create the world. You didn't ask to be born. How did the pressure come to you? The pressure is on him. He created the world. He has a vast eternal plan. He is under pressure, so to speak. Now, can you pitch in? You've got 10 minutes. Can you put on film? No? You're too busy? <laughs> For many Jews today, man, is in America, uh, it's repairing the world. It's going to a, a homeless shelter, and it's, you know, it's fighting climate change, and it's fighting for justice, and fighting for the migrants at the border, and s fighting against injustice. That's how many of my Jewish friends feel needed. We're desperate. We'll, we'll find any cause. Just need me, please. Mm. Please need me. Yes. The, the, the song is Please Please Me. Yeah. And here we're talking about Please Need Me. And the question is no longer who loves you. The question is who needs you. Mm. Wow. I think I, I heard the uh, commencement speeches this year. Different from past years. Every year I listen to these speeches because it tells you where the world is at. Every year the speech was, you graduated, you made it, you're at the top of your world, go out there and succeed and be fabulously successful and show the world what you're... This year, every commencement speech. There was an actor, there was a general, there was a politician, there was a comedian, there was a professor. Every one of them said the same thing. Go out there and make the world a little better. We're, we're getting there. It doesn't show, Manus. I know. It's so little. 
Well, it doesn't show also because there's an inherent uh, incentive in media to just always show the problems and, and, and the drama. And you look at America, it looks like a cesspool of injustice. You'd have no idea how much progress has happened in 50 years because there's just people get power out of fighting injustice. So there's a, there's a sense of exaggeration. And when you look out, you say, hey, we look like we're going in the wrong direction. Yeah. Somebody said a great line the other day. It's as if the arc of history bends towards injustice. That's how it's looking sometimes just because of the noise factor of social media and so forth, which covers up the reality, which is so much better. But, but here's the danger. And this is why psychology, secular psychology, hasn't gotten there yet. Can you tell people, you didn't ask to be born, you don't need to be born, you don't need to be here? Is that not dangerous? People, people will become suicidal or, or nihilistic or, or fatalistic and just give up? No, it's worse than that. If I don't need, and it's not about me, which means I don't need to prove anything. I don't need to become any better. I don't need to become, what was the word? <laughs> Elevated or refined. Well, then to heck with it. Hmm. Then I don't care anymore. Then, no, my product is going to be shabby, shaddy because I don't care. I don't have any pride in my product, and I don't want to be honest. What's that going to get me? So if I take the pressure off me, like, when are you going to be a mensch? And by the way, growing up, it took a long time to figure out what a mensch was. Because if I didn't take my plate away from the table, somebody said, be a mensch. I said, oh, being a mensch means take away from the table. But then if I don't pick up the thing on the way from the store and I don't bring it, be a mensch. Oh, so be a mensch means go shopping? Like, what is a mensch? So all that pressure... When are you going to become a reliable, decent, upright, blah, 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 blah? And I'm saying, I don't need to do any of that. That's not what it's about. Oh, okay. Then I'll be an animal. And that's, that's the, the, the mixture. I'm starting to realize that it's not about me, but I don't know what it is about yet. So we're getting these two conflicting, like advertising. Every... <laughs> Every product, every service. Reinforces the meism. Yes, you deserve. We will give you the news straight because you deserve to know the truth. It would shock me, man, because I was in the ad business for 25 years. Shock me to ever see a billboard that says it's not about you. <laughs> you know? but, but today it's not about your pleasure, about your health. It's about your deservedness. Mm. I've earned, yeah, it's you, my use entitlement. This, use this hair product because you deserve beautiful hair. <laughs> I find that offensive because bald people are probably offended by that. <laughs> they don't even deserve hair. <laughs> well, you so know. So you're, you're raising children to believe that they deserve everything. Including never being offended, and that's how you get fragile kids. Yes. I, I mean, the irony of all this is that i got to think about myself so I can get out of myself. But when you get out of yourself, wow, it feels good. Oh. It's not about me. 
It's about the creator and his vast eternal plan. You want to be part of it or not? I do. Uh, well, on that note, speaking of feeling good, I highly recommend that all my listeners get on thejoyofintimacy.com where you'll hear all about Manis's new book, Rabbi Manis Friedman. It was a, a joy and delight, and it felt good to to feel needed with you. <laughs> Hope you can come back on. What we're doing is definitely needed. It's a crisis. In England, they started a new department in the Ministry of Health. A department de dedicated to solving the loneliness. Because they realize people who feel alone is going to cost them. <laughs> because it's socialized medicine. People who feel alone are going to get sick. Because their immune system crashes. So now they're saying, let's tackle the loneliness. We'll save a lot of money. And you know, a lot of lives. You know, I'm going to invite all my listeners out there to, you know, give me some feedback. Some of the stuff we talked about today was pretty uh, provocative. And I'm just curious about this, these ideas of intimacy and how they, they work in, in real life. And I would be fascinated to, to get some feedback over the next few weeks and months. God bless you, Manus. Great to catch up with you and reconnect with you. It's a pleasure, pure pleasure.